You're listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Eaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Hi, folks. Welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. In this episode, we hear from John Taft about rum running along the coast of Rhode Island during Prohibition. Like me, John is a bit of a history enthusiast, and when he discovered that the boat he and his partners had purchased to run mansion tours turned out to be an actual former rum runner, he went down many rabbit holes researching not only the boat's history, but the history of all the rum running activities off the coast of Rhode Island and in Narragansett Bay. One of the things he discovered was that the boat they had refurbished was the actual boat that was involved in one of the most horrific and deadly conflicts with the Coast Guard during Prohibition. In our talk, John weaves the story of this deadly event, also known as the Black Duck Massacre, with the history, routes, logistics, and characters involved in the various enterprises. John also provides us with a wealth of information on the design and construction of the various boats that were used in the liquor smuggling operations in the mid to late 1920s. Near the end of the podcast, we talk a little bit about a film that he's involved in producing that documents the event. I'll provide a link at the end of the podcast with a website for that film, which also includes a trailer. As he mentions in our talk, the production is on hold at the moment due to COVID, but you can sign up to receive updates on that website. I had a great time talking with John and could have easily spent another hour asking questions. So if booze and you are legal where you're listening and you're not operating a motor vehicle, heavy machinery, pregnant, or nursing. Maybe pour yourself the beverage of your choosing and enjoy our talk. Now you're going to ask me something? Yeah. Okay, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. Okay. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Sure um, thing. Good to be here, Chris. We're going to talk about rum running and that sort of thing. But to start, how did you find the rum runner, the boat? Well, this was back in the early 90s. Uh, Don Glassy and I had uh, built the schooner Madeline up at Scarano Boat Building in Albany, New York. And we'd uh, started running her, I think it was 1992 or it might have been 91 even. I think it was 91. You know, it was one of those, if you build it, they will come kind of deals. So all of a sudden we realized we had a customer base. <laughs> And while we were up there, we we had noticed this kind of semi-derelict, hogged motorboat under a blue tarps. And uh, it was pretty, looking pretty sad, but it had a kind of a cool hull. And it turned out it was an old ferry boat that was uh, had been one of the ferries across uh, Peconic Bay down Long Island. And more, more recent to that, had been used up in uh, Seneca Lake just as an excursion boat. But it had this god-awful ugly house on the top of it it was quite top heavy and somebody had kind of home built this thing but they were telling stories at the boatyard about it that they used to tow 25 water skiers on it on Seneca <laughs> Lake <laughs> like a Cypress Gardens kind of routine and we were like you gotta be kidding because it was a pretty ungainly looking craft and it was powered at that time by a couple of 671 Detroits and Don and I thought well this is cool but my god what a job and john scarano runs the yard up there he he was kind of enthralled with it as a project and he he said he'd work with us on it and it had you know it had been coast guard inspected for many years and we worked up a deal so that uh we would fix the boat up and you know during this discussion it came out that it was actually built as a rum runner back in the late 20s and at the hull was uh it was an elco hull so we decided to look at this project in the, in the sense that we're going to try to recreate as, somewhat the lines of it as a rum runner. Mm -hmm. Although when we got into it, we went and looked and there's actually Rosenfeld photographs of the rum runner and some of her sister ships. She's one, one of four that were designed by Irwin Chase and built in the late 20s. And they were built as very Spartan craft. I mean, they, you know, they're a low silhouette, flush deck, uh, except for a small well aft you know, a small trunk cabin for the engines. We glitzed it up a little bit. We made it look more like a little bit of a commuter yacht sort mm -hmm. of thing. And and we had to put some creature comforts on it so we have that, had that canopy aft. 
put a couple of cat diesels in it, and and off we went. So you repowered it. Yeah. Well, she had those Detroits in her, and in our research, we found out the original power, and you could see actually it was a there was a third engine set of beds and mm. and the, and, a, and the shaft log. And when we looked into it, the original power is three V twelve Liberty aircraft engines. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Which turns out th- these were the. Uh, that was the power plant of choice for all of these. Uh, I mean, this was really like the final evolution of the uh, contact boat or the shore boats, as they were called, and collectively referred to as the Mosquito Fleet. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll get into it in terms of how, what role they played in the logistics of liquor smuggling. The idea with these craft that these were going to be, you know, hard to see. And when you did see them, they're going to be fast. And interestingly enough, also, when you look in the plans, they had a kind of a sophisticated uh, exhaust system, so they could either be above water exhaust for, to get the full power, or they could also run with an underwater exhaust system. And they also had provisions by that time, and this was a development again in the late 20s, to be able to, uh, they had a little tank, that they had a mixture of uh, used, used engine oil, kerosene, and pyrene that they could inject into the exhaust manifolds to generate smoke screens. So, wow. so that was one of the uh, techniques they used to uh, evade the Coast Guard when they're being pursued. And the boat you have, that particular one, was that originally called the Black Duck? Well, you know, we didn't know anything about rum riding back then. <laughs> <laughs> we just thought, this is a cool boat. Right. And, and we liked it. And so we got it down to, we didn't get it to Newport until uh, early 1993. Patricia was down there. It was kind of a bare bone, bones operation with the uh, running the, the excursion boat business. She was down there, and a couple of older gentlemen came up, the boats down at the dock at Bannister's. And they came up, and they said, is that the Black Duck? And we're like, what's this Black Duck? <laughs> we, don't, we don't really think about this Black Duck. Meanwhile, we're trying to sell mansion tours on this thing. We think the, the mansion tours are the way to go. Um, oh, go out and around, yeah? Yeah, which nobody wanted to do because nobody wanted to go out in the morning when the seas mm. are calm enough and the boat is fast enough so it could it could book out there you know you can see a lot in a very short period of time but as soon as the southwest breeze comes in you don't want to be taking people around Breton reef <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> you know it doesn't work and it really did not work at, at all and then so we kind of uh, redialed on the uh, tour mm-hmm. and i and i had to go into the library and go to the old microfilms and, and find out what's, what's this black duck stuff and is prohibition and Rhode Island smuggling history kind of a more appropriate direction for us to go in. And as I got into it, I realized, oh my God, we're going by the site of the black duck massacre, as it's called by many. <laughs> mm. You know, we go by that every day, many times. It's wow. uh, this, this took place right off of Fort Wetherall. In fact, the Coast Guard boat that was involved in the ambush, Coast Guard Cutter 290, was tied up to the buoy off of Fort Wetherall. And, and the actual buoy location then on, on the charts was, was just, was buoy number nine is the one we, we reference to right now. Mm-hmm. But that location was actually probably 100 yards further north. And it, would, it was, uh, back then it was buoy number one. The, and they called it the bull point buoy. So uh, the Coast Guard Cutter was tied up to that and was waiting for him. In our never-ending research. There's indications in Coast Guard intelligence reports that that they had, I mean, the Coast Guard was very avidly breaking codes at that point. There were a lot of, was a lot of radio traffic used by both the Coast Guard and the Rum Runners so that they could uh, pick up rendezvous locations. And the Coast Guard was very good by the point in terms of they had a code breaking office in New York and they're very good at breaking the codes and trying to identify which boats are involved and where their, where their rendezvous points were and times so that would give them an indication of where they would be coming in. But they were also cultivating human intelligence. So they were paying informants. We actually have sheets, you know, I think they're getting, the informants are getting paid $2 a day (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, for, for human intelligence. So they would sprinkle people around the neighborhood. We have a, some interesting reports about some guy hanging around the shipyard over in uh, Fairhaven, chatting up a bunch of the rum, rum boat captains and getting some intelligence that he's passing back to, to Washington. The Black Duck had, was coming in from meeting the, the, uh, the uh, British oil screw st- steamer uh, Seymour, 
and uh, they picked up a load and were coming in and it was, uh, you know, it was the holiday season. And it was an, an unusual night because it was a December, the night of December 28th, early morning, December 29th. And it was pretty calm out, but it was, it was a fog. Most of these boats, they would, they would have a schedule uh, predicated on the, the cycle, the lunar cycle, because if there was a lot of moonlight, they didn't want to go out because right. they, they'd get picked off easy. You know, and again, this was the late 20s. These guys had learned a lot of lessons the hard way, but mm. they had a very well-evolved routine where the, uh, the offshore boats even, they'd be up in uh, Nova Scotia provisioning, and then they'd go up to St. Pierre and Miquelon, pick up their cargo, and then steam down so that they would arrive off of Rum Row just as you're getting, the, you know, probably the 10 days around the new moon so that they can you know, take advantage of the moonless nights. But at the same time, you know, they were looking at the weather patterns too. So if there was, if there were going to be uh, even just cloudy skies, they could stretch either side of that. And foggy nights were perfect. And given that this was the holiday season, you know, the demand was very high, which means the prices were higher. So the rewards would be commensurately higher. So that night, the Coast Guard had decided that they were going to mobilize all the boats at Base 4. The Coast Guard Base 4 was down in New London, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And that's where all the patrol boats were based. At that time, they had uh, a collection of about almost a dozen 75-foot patrol boats. And then they had a, a few 125s. And they also had about 10 old four-stack destroyers that they'd gotten from the Navy back in the mid-20s. The destroyers were better for offshore patrols, and, and they would har harass the uh, fleet out of Rum Row, but the 75-footers would be more inshore trying to intercept the contact boats as they were coming in. They, they got all the boats they could get afloat out there because they knew that they had this combination of a high-demand period. It was, I mean, it was a couple of days before New Year's Eve. So they, <laughs> and, you know, the conditions were perfect. The there were, there were actually two of the seventy fives out. One of them was over by Fort Adams, and then the one in the two ninety that was that actually intercepted the Black Duck was tied up stern to the buoy. Which of course you could make the case saying, "Well, what are they doing tied up to the buoy? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's supposed to tie up to a buoy, right?" But it was the Coast Guard, so and so the, and it was an outgoing tide, so they just tied up stern too, and they're just sitting there waiting, and then the Black Duck was coming up the, the Jamestown shore. Mm -hmm. And in the fog, of course, the first thing they see is the bow of a boat in front of them. So they bore off to port. So they're in between the Coast Guard boat and the, uh, the rock there right off of Fort Weatherall. The, guy, the guys in the Coast Guard boat just opened up with their Lewis machine gun and raked up with machine gun fire and killed three of the four guys on board. And I don't know how much detail we want to get into with this, because I can, <laughs> I can bore into this. You know, you were talking about rabbit well, holes there. I am curious what, what cove, I'm just looking at, I've got my app open here. Is it what they call West Cove? And by Fort Weatherall, there's like three coves right there. Yeah. So imagine that buoy about 100 yards north. The buoy oh, right Oh, I see it. Number nine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So number nine was instead of number nine they had they they shifted the station and maybe it wasn't even 100 maybe 75 yards it was still pretty close to that rock mm. and and so the, the black duck came in left the rock to port and this there's some testimony to the fact that the coast guard may have tied off the bell on the buoy as well Ooh. so they were really looking for that buoy i mean think about this okay so these guys they go out and the typical routine is they've got to leave in mid-afternoon because the, their supply boat is hovering probably 30 miles out. Because mm -hmm. they can't go maintain the, – the guys on Rum Row can't maintain station on the 12-mile limit because, you know, I mean, their navigation is not that good. And the Coast Guard is going to come up and say, oh, you just, you just broached the 12-mile limit. We're going to haul you in. Right. Seize the boat. So they would go out like 30 miles – and then they'd have a rendezvous point around the 12-mile limit. Up here, Rum Row, the most active area was, say, between Montauk and the Vineyard. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at that, it affords you a lot of opportunity to, for the boats to meet without getting in. Because you have, you know, the, the, the line dips in between sure. Block, Block Island and No Man's Land, for sure. Mm -hmm. So they can get a little closer there. 
But still, they got to go 12 miles past Block Island, essentially, just to get to the uh, the contact point. So they got to leave in the afternoon. And for a while, this was uh, what the Coast Guard boats used to do, is they'd stop them on the way out. And they would do a safety inspection, which would inevitably find, oh, your port running light doesn't work. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. So you're busted. You know, we're going to give you a violation. And it's going to take us five hours to give you that violation. Of course, what that did was it, it ran the clock out on their trip because the contact boats had to be able to get out to Rum Row and load up the booze and then bring that in. Now, the contact point is 12, you know, is 12 miles past Block Island at the closest. And so now they're, uh, they've got to come back in. Now it's another you know, 15 miles to get up to the bay. And now they've got to navigate up to wherever they're going to unload, which um, is typically up the bay because they don't want to unload on Aquidneck Island because the choke point for getting the, the product off is the bridge. Right. You know, this, this, or, or the ferry. I mean, they're not going to do that. So they've got to get it up and, and, you know, anywhere from East Greenwich. Warwick Neck was a hotbed. I mean, that was like the preferred place. There was a lot of spots up, up around Warwick Neck. They also had the options, and one of the reasons why uh, this area was such a great spot was there are so many options for bringing booze in. I mean, you, you've got the West Passage, East Passage, the Connaught River, mm-hmm. and, if, and there were even a lot of spots uh, where they could unload in the right weather along the, be- the south beaches. And then you get up towards Budgers Bay, and there's a huge number of spots up there as well, each one of which was kind of controlled by a different... Well, I I hate to use the word gang, but that's (laughs) – there are loose affiliations, at least on the water side. Sure. Once you got ashore, there are more organized operations and and controlled by people uh, who are connected to people in Boston or New York. Mm. And and that's where it got to be more like the traditional gangster kind of thing that you see. But on the water, it was really – I mean, these guys on the water were, were, were different in the sense that they're great mariners and they're taking significant risks every time they go out. So anyway, so they'd be going, they'd be coming back with their loads and th- now they've got to get up to an unloading point, which, which is like, for instance, maybe they're up by up Rocky Point, which was a good, which is a spot they, they liked. And now they got to get the, the boat unloaded in, in enough time before daybreak so that the guys that are, are now assuming the cargo have to be able to get it to a barn or someplace where they're going to hide it before so they can distribute it so that's a very complicated evolution of operations and if they don't get it all done in time they're just going to run out of they're going to, the clock's going to run out on them so the coast guard kind of knew that you know what the time frame was for when these guys were going to come back in as well so they knew okay if they got to get out there at x time to pick up the load they're going to be coming back into the bay somewhere between, say, you know, well, they're not going to come up the bay any later than 3 a.m. Right. Because they're not going to have time to unload everything. So sure enough, it was like uh, I think it was a 1.45 in the morning when the uh, black ducks showed up. And they were kind of, you know, they're, they're feeling their way up the Jamestown shore. I mean, you know, all they have on board is a compass. I mean, these guys are good. They're, they're good navigators, lots of experience. But they, they're still trying to home in on the buoy. And of course, what's the Coast Guard boat's tied up to the buoy. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the aspects of this is a little crazy is the Coast Guard, Coast Guard's use of uh, their weapons. The 75s were equipped with a uh, one-pound cannon, the Hotchkiss cannon, which is so th- that's a 37-millimeter cannon, so it's about an inch and a half bore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was essentially a signal gun, uh, and, and the primary use was for you know, firing the traditional shot across the bow. And they carried a load of blanks, and then they, they, they carried live rounds as well. But even something that size, I mean, the typical contact boat was a 60-foot wood-hulled boat. You you fire a one-pound shot at it and, and hit, it's going to do some significant damage. Yeah. And they also carried uh, either one or two Lewis machine guns mounted on deck, and these were, uh, they, they, it's a thirty caliber round. And these were developed in World War One actually were were used on some of the early biplanes before they came up with the uh, machine guns that could synchronize with the propeller rotation. Mm-hmm. So initially they would mount this on top of the upper wing 
and it, and the navigator would stand up and he'd have to hold his hand up in the air and, and pull the trigger <laughs> to shoot <laughs> over the propeller, you know. But uh, but this was very popular uh, light machine gun used in the field. It, was, it, it had the nickname of the, the Belgian rattlesnake. Ooh. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it was it was a but it was an effective weapon. But the thing is, there, there's a such such a thing as rules of engagement and. Mm. And the Coast Guard had very strict rules of engagement uh, in terms of uh, trying to get rum boats to stop. And, you know, they're supposed to fire a warning shot across the bow. And the warning shot across the bow was supposed to be with the one-pound cannon. They had they were actually, almost every year they put out new rules of engagement. Because every time they put out rules of engagement, the crews on, on the Coast Guard boats would ignore them. Because it was a cat and mouse game out there, and they wanted to stop these guys. You know, they it's so if, if, if you see that old adage, if you give a guy a hammer for a tool, every problem looks like a nail. <laughs> <laughs> so they give machine guns. Oh. And and so, you know, when the black duck hailed into view, I mean, she's coming up and there's a lot of controversy. Was she doing five knots? Was she doing 25 knots? Hmm. But in any case, you know, she's coming in, in the fog. And when she's... I mean, the guys in the Coast Guard boat can hear the black duck coming because they've got their engines off. And and the black duck doesn't know anything. Those guys don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so they come in. They see all of a sudden it looks like they're going to collide with something. They throw the helm to port. And, of course, if you throw the helm to port at that location, you're going to drive into the that cul-de-sac, basically, between Clingstone and Fort Wetherill. You know, right. you're just going to pile on the bull point. So they, they they veer off the port, and and within seconds of them coming into sight, the Coast Guard doesn't sound their klaxon. You know, they say they sh- shine the spotlight on their signal flag, which is another signal to stop. And they open up with a machine gun and rip off 20-something rounds. And then Black Duck disappears from sight. A couple of minutes later, Black Duck comes back out and, and, and tries to maneuver alongside and bumps into the Coast Guard 290. And by this time, uh, two of the three guys on board are dead and the third was laying there dying. And the uh, the captain of the boat, Charlie Travers from Fairhaven, was uh, shot in the hand. So he had, he had managed, still managed to get the, to maneuver the boat alongside. From there, they, you know, they kind of spent some time just kind of cleaning things up. The Coast Guard wasn't in a big hurry to get over to Fort Adams. And later, there were claims that uh, Jacob Weissman would have been able to be saved, but uh, he died by the time they got over to Fort Adams. And, uh, and they took the bodies off there, put them in the morgue temporarily. And then the, they hauled uh, Charlie off to Newport Hospital and took the bodies over to Hambly's funeral home, which was uh, on Man Street at that point right across from the uh, police station now, and towed the Black Duck down to New London. It, Charlie stayed in the hospital in Newport a couple of days. But the, that morning, Father Magoon, who was um, director of the Siemens Church Institute, he also had a parish at uh, St. George's, which is on, was on Rhode Island Ave, which is mm-hmm. right next to the parking lot, where the, uh, across next to Newport Hospital. Mm-hmm. He was able to get into the hospital and speak to Charlie that, that morning. And then he came out, and delivered a sermon ripping into the Coast Guard, condemning the murderous actions of the Coast Guard. And this sermon was quoted in the papers across the country. Wow. And this thing hit the front pages, and it was, it was an incendiary. I mean, you got public, the public across the country was riveted by this thing because, I mean, you know, basically the Coast Guard just ambushed these guys and, you know, shot them down, cold blood. So... You know, and this story goes on and on and on, and I, I, I really. So it, it, there's a question of which rabbit hole you really want to go yeah. down here, Chris. Presumably, they also take the contraband. I take it. Did yeah, they get so contraband. They, well, <laughs> there there were 327 cases of booze on the Black Duck. You know, and and, and one of the things these boats would do, they um, they would carry dories on the aft deck because. The, the great thing about the dories, first of all, it was like a big container for the, they, they use these things called hams. Mm-hmm. And a ham was um, a burlap sack with, with padding, straw, 
that they would use to, um, well, let me just go back a bit because by this point, you know, earlier in, during prohibition, a lot of the booze would come up from the Bahamas or from the Caribbean. And Rum Row was actually started by this guy, Bill McCoy. He's credited as being the pioneer of Rum Row. And he, he started out because he, he bought this old Gloucester fishing schooner in 1921. Prohibition started January 16th, 1920, officially. And right off the bat, there were people going up to Canada and smuggling booze in. And there were people going to the Bahamas. And, but it was very small scale, you know, people on their fishing boats and things like that. So McCoy got the idea of, of getting a schooner, and he bought this up in, in Gloucester, the, the Marshall. And he started bringing in booze from Nassau. And he set up off in New York uh, in 1921. And then he, the business was so good, he bought another schooner, the Arethusa. And he actually anchored the Arethusa off of no man's land. And back then, it was, the 12-mile limit was, it was a three-mile limit. It, the 12-mile limit was instituted in, in the mid-20s, specifically because of Prohibition, and try to make it give, give the Coast Guard more opportunity to uh, prevent the boats coming close to land. So McCoy was parked over off the vineyard, and uh, he was actually hanging ar- around with the uh, Aquinnah Wampanoags, because <laughs> they were kind of outlaws, too. And, and then he would go into New Bedford and set up the deal. So he, because that was before it was an organized activity, he had just get the word out saying that, Hey, I've got a boat out here full of booze. Why don't you guys come out and buy some? Right. And he actually took a newspaper man from the new Bedford standard times out with him and, and showed him and said, look, I, I've got like thousands of cases of booze on this thing. Go back and tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in the coast guard, then they didn't have any resources to enforce this. I mean, they had their, they had a few cutters, but these were, you know, vessels that had, were 10, 12 knots and, and, and spread p- pretty thin. So Rum Road took off from there. And before you knew it, there were just boats coming in from all over the place. I mean, they're coming over from Europe. A lot, of, a lot of Canadian boats are involved. Although Canada had their own version of prohibition on a province-by-province province basis. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but their, their prohibition didn't prevent them from selling it to people taking it out of the country. So they were still manufacturing. See, the Prohibition Act here prevented any manufacture in the United States. That wasn't true in Canada. So then McCoy's, he got very busy very quickly. And uh, he actually had a third boat uh, by that point. And, and back then, the boats weren't sophisticated. They were just buying surplus Grand Banks schooners. Mm-hmm. And But people started coming over from Europe, you know, uh, uh, with old, you know, World War One sub chasers and uh, uh, tramp steamers, all kinds of things, tired yachts, and they just load them up and, and bring them over. And uh, then McCoy ended up having some trouble. He had, he had an engine problem with the Arethusa, and he was off of Halifax. And because he had a load of booze, he couldn't bring it into Halifax because he had mm-hmm. come up from uh, Nassau. So he was trying to figure out what to do. And then somebody said, uh, well, you know, there's these two French islands off of Newfoundland, you know, St. Pierre and Miquelon. You can go in there, no problem. So he takes the Arethusa up there and everybody says, well, welcome to France. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're part of France. And th- they were happy as a clam to take care of the Arethusa and sell them as much booze as he wanted with very low export duty. Mm-hmm. which was another key thing. And um, and still, they were making plenty of money if they did this. Now, Patricia and I went up there about three years ago. And these are just two rocky, crazy islands. Uh, and you're within sight of Newfoundland. Um, you can It's about seven or eight miles across. They love showing people all the all this stuff you know, because the, the waterfront's lined with concrete warehouses that are all have like 1926 or 1927 stamped over the doors. Wow. And these are all built as liquor warehouses during Prohibition. There's a railway, really nice railway, right in the middle of town. And because uh, this used to be a, a big uh, cod fishing port. And they said, that's where we hauled the Arethusa right there. <laughs> So excellent, yeah, and there's houses up there that are, that that have additions made out of like liquor boxes that were broken down. Like there's one cottage they call that's the Cuddy Sark cottage, you know, 
there's a hotel, the Hotel Robert, that they, of course, they, they all claim that Al Capone visited them there. I mean, well, who's to say? Al Capone's visited just about every place in, with any connection to liquor going, but, uh, you know, maybe he did. There's also claims he, he, he stopped at the Narragansett Hotel down, you know, across the bay. So, right. I don't know. So anyway, so McCoy ended up, uh, you know, he, he was the pioneer with all this stuff. Although, by, you know, by the time things were getting crazy in the mid-20s, he, he decided to, to, uh, to get out of it. He'd been arrested a couple of times, and his lawyers helped him a lot. And around this time, the law was a very malleable thing at that time for prohibition offenses. And uh, if you spread your money around wisely, you could get a lot done. But What, what consequences, just to go back to uh, the incident where the Coast Guard shot the guys on the Black Duck, what, were there any consequences for those Coast Guardsmen? Or, or were they considered doing their job? You know, this wasn't the first time there had been fatalities involved. It was one of the more dramatic ones, you know, three of the four crew being killed, you know, in, in seconds was uh, was a lot. Right out of the gate, Rhode Island, and just to back up a little, Rhode Island, prohibition was not popular here. Rhode Island was generally considered a wet state, you know, states were divided between the wets and the dries, mm. the wets favoring uh, repeal of prohibition. It was the 18th Amendment of the Constitution. And so it had to be ratified by two-thirds of the states. Now, it turned out every state ended up ratifying the 18th Amendment, except for Rhode Island. Rhode Island was the, the lone holdout. So there was no cooperation, really, between the federal and the state authorities here. You know, and, and it, was a, it was a federal enforcement effort by Coast Guard on land and the Customs Department once ashore. So immediately it was a little bit of a battle started between the state and the feds. The, the, the state attorney general actually wanted to get the Coast Guard guys back to Rhode Island. So in case they decided to charge them in this case, now whether it would be manslaughter or more serious charges remains to be seen. But this immediately started a, a real political uh, effort between the feds and the, and the state. On a federal level, it went all the way up. I mean, uh, Secretary Mellon, who was Secretary of the Treasury at the time, there's a number of letters that he wrote to the Attorney General to try to figure out how they could get out of this. And they, they ended up digging up a lot of arcane law related to the founding of the Coast Guard back when it was the Revenue Cutter Service. So they had documents from the, uh, from the 18th and 19th century trying to support the Coast Guard's actions in this case. Uh, you know, there was the senators from Massachusetts and Rhode Island were raising holy hell about this in Washington. And there were a number of inquests held. The first inquest was the coroner's inquest. Uh, the coroner was a fellow by the name of Dawson. And that was actually started at the uh, jail in Newport, which is the jailhouse inn. That was, mm. And that's so, the, you know, that was the, the jail and the, the Newport police station. And they so they started the, the initial inquest there. At the same time, there was a, a grand jury convened in Providence, and simultaneous with that, there was a uh, Coast Guard inquest that was started down in New London. Coast Guard inquest actually generated a lot of material. You know, they did the most thorough because they had access to everything, and they actually had you know, like ballistics experts trace bullet paths through the boat, so wow. they would, would, could see the angle of where the bullets came in. And those are exhibits, and they're down in the uh, National Archives. We actually got copies of those. There's, they drew exhibits of the maneuvering pattern of the Black Duck and the, and the 290 to show how, you know, on, on, a, on a chart to show you the, the different speeds they may have been going and all that. So, but there was no way that the Coast Guard was going to let their guys go back to Rhode Island at this point. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, they're not going. So there was a real push-pull thing going on here, and uh, it played out over several weeks. In the end, the state really, they didn't have a lot to work with in terms of uh, getting the crew of the 290 back there for any kind of testimony. In the end, uh, they dropped the uh, chart. You know, they dro the, the grand jury found there was, quote, no true bill. That was their terminology for uh, deciding not to, that they couldn't go on and find any anything actionable here. Mm. And But at the same time, the same grand jury remained convened because, of course, now they've got Charlie Travers, the, who had been wounded in the hand, the captain of the Black Duck. And the federal uh, authorities declined to prosecute him. 
and he got off scot-free. Wow. Even though, I mean, his, his buddies have been killed. Right. Um, he lost his boat. Yeah, I mean, it, it, well, you know, these boats were funny things. Uh, it, it's kind of like the fishing boats, you, you know. It, mm. Usually the owner is not the guy on board. Of course. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And and there's a lot of different claims about who owned the black duck. And uh, sometimes it's not even as simple as that. So Because sometimes you might have, I mean, we know it was registered in Jake Weissman's name. Well, it wasn't even, it was his address, actually. It was registered to a fictional person, a, a John Williams, who happened to have the same address as Jake Weissman. But then it turns out there's a relative of Jake Weissman's who's in the Coast Guard intelligence reports as being the owner. And mm. so even so, I mean, okay, so he might have owned the boat, but Charlie very likely owned the engines. So it was one of those crazy deals. Oh, wow. So, you know, and these guys all work together on this stuff. You know, uh, And that's one of the fascinating aspects of that. You've got this crazy cast of uh, characters in, in, in the Mariners and boat builders and designers who were involved. And, and in the course of this, one of the kind of the crazy things we found was that um, the person whose name keeps coming is Walter McGinnis, the, the naval architect and boat builder. So Walter McGinnis, he got his start up at the Lawley Yard in mm-hmm. Ponset, Mass. And it turns out that he designed the Tramp and the Black Duck. Now, the Tramp was a sister ship to the Black Duck. And Charlie actually got his... Uh, I'll get into Charlie's history a little bit. Charlie was... Um, grew up in New Bedford. And when he was 16 years old, he lied about his age and joined the Coast Guard and was stationed at the at, at Cuddyhunk and was on the surf, surf boat station there. And did a year there and then got out and worked in the mills a little bit, did some fishing, did a fair amount of fishing. But that only lasted a, a year or two. And he got picked up by this guy, um, Frank Butler, who was part of the old part of the Tillman family? They're they're an old vineyard whaling mm-hmm. bunch. There's a lot of whaling captains in the Tillman family. But Frank Frank got his hands on the tramp, so Charlie ended up cutting his teeth in the business, uh, working as an engineer on the tramp. And, and the tramp was busted a, a few times, and every time Charlie was on board and they got seized, Charlie would give a false name, so his name never shows up. He, all these guys had a slew of aliases whenever they got arrested because you know there was no picture ids back then so right. you just tell you know one time he was carl brown another time he's carl white <laughs> oh, <laughs> harry scott <laughs> you know so charlie had, had started out there walter mcginnis built both of those boats the tramp and, and and the black duck well he designed them and got them started because they were they were built they were started in late 1924 and then walter got a, an offer of a job to run the Knox shipyard over in East Greenwich. Mm-hmm. At the Knox yard at that time, the Knox yard was becoming the place to go to get a fast contact boat. I mean, it was busy. They were, they were, they were cranking on this stuff. So they got, they got Walter down there and cause he'd be creating a little bit of a name for himself doing that sort of work. And, and, and in, in those post-war years, I mean, this, this was, this was prime work cause the, these guys were paying top dollar, these boats because it was such a demand for them. Uh, so then Walter had just gotten started there and uh, the Lolly Yard was, was struggling and had to be reorganized under bankruptcy action. And Walter had an opportunity to go back to the Lolly Yard. So Walter actually built, he designed and, and, and was involved in the construction of those two boats. And then it turns out around the same time, he started designing boats for the Canadians because you know, the first generation of rum row boats were kind of slow on gainly craft. There were the Grand Bank schooners and, mm. you know, boats that weren't, had used up their viable life in the commercial world one way or another. So they started building custom-built transport boats so they could run the cargo up and down. You know, it was, it was like a little version of the triangle trade. They'd, they'd build the boats and provision the boats, uh, fuel the boats in Nova Scotia. Then they'd run up to St. Pierre Miquelon, and they'd pick up the booze, and then they'd run down to Rum Row, which was the biggest Rum Row was off in New York, but second to that uh, was the area off of, south of, of Rhode Island, and then 
in a more limited way, Boston. Boston was more seasonal because, you know, nobody wants to sit on station off of Boston in the middle of the winter because when those, you know, when those nor'easters come in, it's, it's, it's awful. But, right. you know, you get down along the Rhode Island, if you, if you sit offshore here, it's actually, <laughs> it's more tenable at least, right? you know, in, in that kind of weather. So McGinnis was building uh, these transport boats up there. And it turns out that the boat that the Black Duck got their cargo off of, the Seymour, that was a McGinnis boat. And at the same time, McGinnis got busy building boats for the Coast Guard. And in fact, between 1932 and the Korean War, out of 15 classes of Coast Guard cutters, McGinnis designed 13 of them. Wow. And I remember years ago, and this was probably when we first got interested in this subject, I actually called uh, Alan McGinnis, was Walter's son. And Alan had worked with Walter uh, many years before Walter's death. Alan told me it was it was it was kind of funny because the Coast Guard was they were very frustrated because they'd go to consult with him. He was the go to guy because he he was real he really knew his craft for building boats that were good for this kind of activity. And they'd go in there and they'd see he'd you know hurriedly thrown a bunch of papers over a set of plans <laughs> for a rum boat. And on the other drafting table, they've got the plans for the Coast Guard cutters for them to review. Uh, right. And they, so they, they knew what he was doing. <laughs> and, and, you know, those 75-footers were great boats. And, in, and finally, Walter ended up using those basic designs uh, at the request of the first of his clients was the, the, the folks that built Lion's Whelp. Which was oh, modeled, yeah. which was loosely modeled after that, and then Black Knight, and then um, ultimately Hodgkins built Urel, and so they were kind of all built on that same model of what the seventy-five uh, foot patrol boat was. Sorry if I'm meandering around a no, little no, bit. No, no, no. This is great. This is great. I, I just love the yeah. idea that it doesn't matter who your customer is; you're going yeah. oh, to yeah. do the best work you can. Yeah, and of course, the thing is. The Coast Guard was hampered because, you know, their boats had to be out there maintaining station for long periods of time and all kinds of crazy weather. Whereas the rum boats, they could build them lighter. They only needed fuel to just zoom out and zoom back, although it was a lot of fuel. Right. You know, imagine some of the, you know, these boats that had three Liberty V-12s. The rum runner was designed with a 900-gallon gas tank. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, these, and, and this aviation fuel. You know, sure. Because these yeah. these these Liberty engines, they were originally designed for aircraft in World War One, and they had ramped up this big. Even though the United States was a late entry to that conflict, when they when they ramped up the industrial capacity available, then they went whole hog. And so by the time the war ended, they had built over twenty thousand of these V twelve engines, almost none of which they had something to put them in. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, the aircraft development and construction just wasn't keeping pace with it. So a huge number of those got sold off as surplus after the war, which was like perfect for the rum runners. You know, they all of a sudden they have access to these cheap, powerful engines. I can't imagine how loud it must have been. Oh, running these things. Think about the, the noise level. And and there are some old recordings we found, films of, of these boats. The Coast Guard would actually stage these... Um, PR events. So they, they'd show mm -hmm. a Coast Guard cutter chasing a contact boat. And in, and actually the Coast Guard, whenever they caught a particularly fast boat, they would reconfigure it as a Coast Guard vessel. So many of the Coast Guard vessels were captured rum boats. But yeah, the noise level was atrocious. You know, and these were fussy craft. I mean, you think about it, an aircraft engine's meant to be overhauled on a very regular basis. You know, they're very finely tuned. And and just you'd had you had to have a full time engineer on. Like for instance, they wouldn't run out at speed to the to Rum Row because they just burn up too you know all their fuel. So they would mosey out there at a more reduced speed. Uh, but by the time they got there, because they're running at a reduced speed, all the plugs are fouled. Oh, so now they've right. got to change all the plugs, sure. which they would do you know in transit. <laughs> so, and I, I imagine these are air cooled engines, right? Or no, they were they they had to they had to marinize them, and actually Charlie Travers had a shop on Hillman Street in New Bedford, marinizing aviation engines, uh, and the Liberties were only one of several engines that they chose to to use for this, and uh, you know they'd have to build their own water jackets, and they mm -hmm. cast them, and you know I mean we're talking about a lot of guys who are really savvy about machinery and coming up with great ways of 
solving problems. But but even so, um, interestingly enough, the engines on the on the uh, Black Duck weren't Liberties; they were um, Detroit Aero Marines, which were marinized Fiat Zeppelin engines. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's yeah. crazy. I mean, these guys, you know, they're cutting edge. Now, this is a funny thing. I was doing my research for this, and my wife said, oh, years ago, she works for a local print shop. And she said, we did some labels for a, a liquor called Black Duck. <laughs> is that any association? I said, I have no idea. Well, you know, uh, well, Don and I would come up with some crazy schemes sometimes. But, we, you know, one night we came up with the idea saying, okay, we need our own rum company. So we, we actually were talking to the guys down in uh, at Cruzan uh, to see if we could work with them. You know, but after a while we decided, well, all we have to do is just buy Cruzan. And, and at that time we were running Arabella down in the islands. Sure. And so whenever we were coming back up, we'd load up with, oh, I can't remember if it was 100 or 200 cases of Cruzan. We were paying, I don't know, four and a half dollars a bottle. Wow. And, and then... We would steam the labels off and just slap that label on. Of course, <laughs> you know, and the funny thing is, you know, we were taking a little bit of a risk bringing all that booze up because we, we, we serve rum punch on the, on the rum runner. And we thought, okay, are we going to do this legitimately? And it just seemed like too much of a pain in the neck. So the idea was we just, we would bring up several hundred cases of Cruzan rum on, on Arabella every spring when she came back up from the islands. And then we would pull the rum runner up alongside pile it on, go to Ann Street Pier and unload it. And then we have a shop over at Christie's Landing. Yeah. And I was like, where are we going to store all this? And I realized, oh, we have a crawl space underneath. So why don't we just cut a hole in the floor and we're going to put a hatch there and we put it all underneath the floor. And I mean, I, we're just practically solving the problems, but at the same time, we're doing what anybody else back mm -hmm. in the 20s would be doing. <laughs> Right, and I always thought, well, you know, if we someday we might get caught doing this by customs because I'm sure we're supposed to be, you know, what we're doing is not legal at all in terms of just pulling, pulling this off. But then I thought, well, you know, worst thing that happens when we get caught, we're going to get some great publicity out of this. We get some <laughs> major mileage, but somehow we got away with it. Now we have to pay retail for the rum. Oh, right. <laughs> I once crewed on a. I think it, I want to say it was a little harbor. It was, I shouldn't say crude. It was a delivery, like a 60 foot little harbor. And it had a dedicated tank for rum with a tap. I found out about it because I asked why there was this third tap by the, the galley sink. It, it turns out that the owner fancied this particular kind of rum. And I don't know. I never got much further. I don't know if they poured individual bottles down. They had a deck fill. It had a, yeah, yeah. it was obscured by something else, but it had a deck fill. And I don't know if they poured individual bottles down it or if they bought it. I don't know. Had it fueled like a big truck came. <laughs> <laughs> but they said it was a, I want to say it was a 25 or 30 gallon tank. Yeah. Well, that you bring up an, an interesting question because these guys during prohibition, I mean, they're smugglers. So you're going to try to think of every innovative way you can to try to get booze in without getting caught. In the meantime, your product typically comes in glass bottles. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, I mean, that's an inconvenient way of handling stuff. And like the when I mentioned earlier about the hams, what they would do in St. Pierre, you'd, you'd get cases uh, wooden cases of scotch, for instance. I mean, that's a real awkward thing if you're going to be on the pitching deck of a of an old schooner and you got to throw it down to some guys on a on a speedboat. Mm. I mean, that's an awkward thing to hand, handle. So one of the industries in St. Pierre, and it was interesting, during the height of Prohibition, everybody, people were renting out their houses to store booze in because there was no space. Because first of all, it gets really cold up there. <laughs> and even with a high alcohol content, I mean, a lot of these products didn't have super, I mean, there were a lot of champagne getting shipped through there as well. So they'd have mm -hmm. to find places where they could keep it from getting too cold. But they had a, a small cottage industry of people that would just store the booze and then they would dismantle the boxes and then pack it in, in the straw and then sew the burlap sacks tight around it. And so you would have anywhere from six to 12 bottles, but it was a package that was actually very easy to to stack because they were kind of triang triangular in shape, so mm -hmm. you could you could stack them very tight with very little wasted space, and you could pitch them down to people on 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 deck very easily. And because because there's multiple points, so they have to get transferred 
from shore to the schooner, from the schooner to the contact boat, from the contact boat to the guys on the beach, from the guys on the beach into the truck, you know, and on and on. So there's multiple handling points here. So they've got to be able to to, to create this stuff so that it can survive all that. But they were still using glass bottles in many cases. Now, there was a certain amount of activity bringing rum in in casks, but a cask is a pretty awkward thing too, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was mostly from the West Indies. But r- rum was not... I mean, even they were called rum runners. Rum was like the last product that you usually got brought in. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what was the the predominant product that was aboard? Well, whiskey was like big time. (laughs) (laughs) The, I mean, the Black Duck had, uh, what was it? It was uh, Golden Wedding. Golden Wedding Scotch. And and that was actually manufactured in Canada by United States. Golden Wedding, that was what they called it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It almost sounds rude. It does. (laughs) (laughs) And Log Cabin Whiskey was another one. I've actually got a bottle uh, that came from the bottom of the harbor in St. Pierre. A Frenchman who actually had made a, a short film about St. Pierre and rum running gave it to me. and It was all barnacle encrusted. Interestingly enough, in St. Pierre, after Prohibition ended, they were stuck with a lot of these bottles of, of whiskey. So Bronfman's, Bronfman's is the, the family that still owns Seagram's. But they were very involved in... Um, a lot of illegal smuggling activity. They sent barrels so they could re, uh, they could put the whiskey back in the barrels to age it more, so they could oh. get a higher price for it. So they took all these bottles and they threw them in the harbor. So I guess the bottom of the harbor is littered with old whiskey bottles, and so I've got one that's covered with barnacles who's been sitting in the bottom of the harbor in Saint Pierre for quite a while. The other thing they were doing was there they actually outfitted some of these boats as tankers so they would have tanks several thousand gallon tanks a a string of them and there were some of the boats who were built up in nova scotia and these these are boats probably around 100 to 120 feet very and again low silhouette and towards the end of prohibition it was becoming very problematic with the uh, speed boats so they were taking bigger risks because everybody was was ratting on everybody else because he had all these rival gangs so maintaining a steady supply on on a regular route became more difficult. So people were taking bigger chances. So they would outfit these boats, these 100, 120-foot boats, that would just go in and they would make one big shot. And they just the cost of the boat would be paid for twice over if they were successful at it. Mm-hmm. And they were actually surprisingly successful. And a lot of it, because by this time, they were also paying off the Coast Guard crews. I mean, it was a lot of corruption, both on the shore side and in the Coast Guard crews. There's numerous uh, accounts of Coast Guard guys getting busted. In fact, in some cases, the patrol boats were actually paid to bring loads in. <laughs> so, <laughs> and with a limited number of arrests, you have to assume that a certain there were more successful operations like that. So, mm. uh you know, you know, so the Coast Guard, unfortunately, got a bad rap in many cases in the public eye for that. But these tankers would come in and they, you know, people would set up shore, shoreside facilities. So they'd run a pipe down to the shore, tanker would come in, and they'd be able to pump it out. It, it didn't really work out that well. There were only there were only two boats that were outfitted like that. And they made a, they made a few runs. But there were a couple of attempts to build submersible vessels. It's kind of like, you know, the, you know like the narco Oh, yeah. That they've the got totals, now. yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there were, and those, those didn't work out really well either. But, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, it's remarkable. If you just, if you, you can build a pretty big boat with a low enough silhouette, and it's really hard to see it. I mean, this is pre-radar. Mm. I mean, out on the bay, whenever I go out there, I'm always looking around, what's, where's the rum runner right now? And, and it's not till they're right, just about on top of you that you can really, that you really see sure. it, you know? I mean, if she's out by uh, Castle Hill, I'm like, what's that? I mean, I, I, you can't see her out there. Yeah. Any other boat, you can, you know, I can pick out by the silhouette, but the rum runner is just, it's, and, uh, right in. and she's got more stuff up in the air than she would have when she was first built. So, and actually Charlie Travers, the last time he was arrested for liquor smuggling by water, because he did, he actually had a very colorful history of creative liquor enterprises they brought this boat, the Amasita, in. Uh, she was a 110-footer. And they brought her into 
is, I think it's at Nascatucket Bay, which is uh, over by West Island in Fairhaven. They, they came in there and the Coast Guard just got lucky and busted them just as they were unloading it. And the crazy thing is the Coast Guard boat that they were busted by was the old Tramp, which had been converted to a Coast Guard cutter. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, I think you answered it, but one of my questions that I'd written down when they were heading out to go meet the mm-hmm. boat or coming in and the Coast Guard would presumably see them, were they pretending to do, be doing something else? Like, did they have fishing poles over the side or did they they knew what they were up to? Well, I mean, it was crystal clear what they were up to. Yeah. And, yeah. and no attempts to disguise it like a fishing trip or Well, a, you know, they'd say, I mean, maybe they did have a couple of fish. They'd always say, hey, we're just going out fishing or sightseeing or something and maybe... Uh, but you know everybody knew yeah uh, but the thing is legally you couldn't stop them for going out no you had to catch them coming in with booze on board mm. and uh and it was the same thing with the guys who were outside in fact bill mccoy he was very careful to say you know he wasn't breaking the law he was just out there you know we we know where we we know what international boundaries are mm. and we know what we what we can get out, what we can do, and still be within what's legal. Now the guys running the boats in once his booze on board, they knew it wasn't legal. But uh, th- there were many cases where boats were caught. I mean, it was interesting when the uh, twelve mile limit was put in place. Uh, that was in nineteen twenty four, I think, or twenty early twenty five. It was May twenty five. It wasn't really a twelve mile limit. It was one hour's steaming, ah. and it was codified later as a twelve mile limit. But the initial language in the law was one hour's steaming was mm-hmm. the international limit. If the boat did 10 knots, it was a 10-mile limit. And there were cases where the, you know, a boat was caught and they said, well, you know, and they're inside the 12 miles. And they're, they're able to plead their case in court and say, well, you know, really, our boat's slow. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like. And, That's uh, interesting. So I, I didn't know the origin of that 12-mile yeah. line. Yeah. Yes. And, and really, the U.S., because every other country at that point in time was was three mile international limits. Mm. So. You still see, I believe, you still see both demarcations on the chart. Don't well, you? you see the three miles is a state. That's a state demarcation now. Oh, okay. And if you look at the windmill, the wind turbine locations off of Block Island, they're just outside of that. They're right on that. Mm. So they're they're in federal water, not in state waters. It just, it makes sense on other other ways too but i'm sure that there's some kind of regulatory element that would factor into the siting mm. i'll probably get a call from this from the wind turbine guy saying you're full of crap <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting that they're just yeah. outside that three mile line yeah. yeah did you want to touch on the film at all or do you just want to leave it at that the project that you're involved with as in- yeah is it I mean, it's still very much a just... work in progress, and uh, I mean, we're we're editing now. You know, the COVID pandemic certainly threw a monkey wrench in the work in many ways. I mean, just a simple thing like the editor and and people he work with, they've all got kids at home, so oh. all of a sudden, you know, just the dealing with having children at home yeah. complicates their lives. So, um, but it's given us an opportunity to explore a few other things that uh, mm. uh, we wouldn't have. But the, the other big problem for us is the uh, all the archives are closed right and you know there are certain things we, we've had a couple of trips down to the national archives in dc but every time you go there it's kind of like you get say oh now we now now we can see that there's more here like mm-hmm. like we, we want to dig into the intelligence files a little deeper because we know there's a lot of material there you know, we've been working with mystic seaport they've actually got some had some great resources for uh, plans for uh, a lot of the lolly builds are there and some of the mcginnis plans but then it turns out the the black duck plans are up at at the Hart museum which is uh mit and they were shut down for for covid but at the same time they that rolled into they've got a two-year construction project to build a new facility for all their collections so we know that the black duck plans are there we can't Mm. get at them for another two years now it's like (laughs) But that's okay. We've got, you know, we've got pl- plenty of work with. I mean, what I can say about the filming, it was crazy in terms of, uh, you know, we did all the on the water filming, 
not this last November, the November before that. It was it was long days and it was cold. So like it was like a full immersion experience in terms of what the, these guys really were, were dealing with on the rumboats because their life out there, I mean, they were doing this year round and they made more money doing it in the winter than they did in the summer. Mm. And, you know, these boats had no creature comforts in them. I mean, and and we've gotten really used to this, all this nice technical clothing we have these days. You know, I mean, these guys are wearing wool wool sweaters and and oil skins and stuff. And man, these guys, it, it gave me a huge appreciation for what what tough characters they were, but also what great mariners they were. Because sure. you know, you're going out there, and now you're twenty, thirty miles off the, off the coast. And you're banging around, and in a boat. I mean, these these contact boats are built light because they had they had to be to be fast, and they're banging against the size of some cargo ship out there when you're trying to get your load of booze off, and then they've got to run it in, and they've got to you know, and, and navigationally it's it's uh, you know it's it's tough because they've got to maintain some kind of speed coming in too, and it, all the while you're trying to avoid getting caught by the coast guard. You know, I gained huge respect for what they were doing. And, and it's not like they just did it every, you know, once a month. They were out there. Every night they could do it, you're out there doing it. I did watch the trailer that you've got on the yeah. website. So yeah. I'll I'll direct people to that uh, cool. as, as a teaser. Yeah. Well, I appreciate this history lesson. And uh, like you said, there's all kinds of paths you can go down. And is it true? I don't know if I read this somewhere. We talked earlier about Captain Bill McCoy. Is that where the expression, the real McCoy, came from? Because oh, he did not water down an, his booze, or is that that's a that's another rabbit hole? Oh, but sorry. Our, our version is yes, that's definitely the case. And there's claims of other uses earlier, mm. um, but in terms of making it a widespread use, I mean, you know, anytime you go into these uh, any of these sayings, usually there's a backstory with a, and another backstory and another backstory. So, mm. so the thing that we have to refer to here is the thing that drives it into widespread popular use and certainly bill mccoy is responsible for that and uh because he he was credited with being the guy that would take i mean other operators were known for cutting their booze to increase their profits but he was really proud of being a real straight shooter and making mm-hmm. sure that he took care of his customers and he also captured the popular imagination you know you, you remember i told you about the him dragging the uh the reporter for the Bedford Standard Times out with him. That's unbelievable. And and there's you know there's great. If you want to see some great images, the Mariners Museum down in uh, Newport News has a collection of photographs of Bill McCoy on the Arthusa doing everything from having a cookout with some friends and and he was a tea, teetotaler by the way. So we do this. Oh yeah, and so he, he's not drinking at any of them, uh, catching fish, playing with their machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> he, had a, he had a deck mounted machine gun on, on on board just to you know because hijackers were an issue back then. People mm. coming on and trying to steal your money and booze. Yeah, he he was a character, and he uh, actually there's a fellow down in uh, Mr. Connecticut, Bailey Pryor, who did a a, a documentary on him, uh, which is really worth uh, seeing. I think you can get it on YouTube. But you can go to Bailey's website because, and and Bailey's kind of instructive here because he's another person who got fascinated with some aspect of this. And he actually was a filmmaker. He, and he worked for Warren Miller. He ran, he was the president of Warren Miller films for a long time. And he's a very, uh, he's gotten a number of Emmy Awards for his filmmaking. Uh, he's done documentary films. Did one recently on uh, the uh, effort with the Morgan to get, you know, the, re- the final, yeah. the more recent rebuilding. And then when they went on their, their trip around New England. But Bailey got fascinated by Bill McCoy and, and did a documentary on him. In the course of which, what does he end up doing? He ends up founding a rum company. <laughs> <laughs> So he, that's become his new main gig. He's the real McCoy rum. And it's gotten, to be, it's gotten great reviews and they're cranking out product. And I think they just got one of the major liquor companies just bought a controlling share in it, I think. Wow. So he's doing really well. And we went down and talked to him and, and did an interview with him for, you know, for some of our background material on Bill McCoy. And uh, he's got a test still, a test... Like like a sample distillery set up down in Stonington, Connecticut, 
the, this, he imported that from Scotland. I guess it's the only one in the country for this kind of still to do test batches that they, that's still scalable for large production. Mm. But um, interesting character. Well, thanks. This has been this has been great, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this. No worries, Chris. Yeah. It's always good to talk. All right. Uh, I love what you're doing here. It's really fun. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what makes it fun. Well, folks, there you have it. That was my fantastic conversation with John Taft about all things rum running, smuggling booze, boat construction, all good stuff. As I mentioned at the beginning, um, at the end there, we talked about the film that is in progress. Uh, it's been on hold right now. The website, if you want to visit that to get updates, it's blackduck.org, and it's B-L-A-C-K-D-U-C-K.org, O-R-G. And on that website, you can sign up for their mailing list. Uh, I think they've got social media links. There is a trailer on the website, bits of the film, that sort of thing. I also want to mention some of my astute Listeners may have observed that I've got new uh, little intro music there. Finally replaced my horrible guitar jingle. And I want to give a shout out to Nella Ruiz from Argentina. She is a musician and musical composer. Made that little jingle for me. You can follow her on Instagram at Nella Musica. That's N-E-L-A-M-U-S-I-C-A. And I will also put a little note in the uh, show liner there if you want to check out those links. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.